Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. Sorry it's been a while since I last put an episode out, um, I feel bad about that but it's just, uh, just haven't had the time that I would have liked or needed to to get stuff done so um, yeah it's taken way longer than I wanted to, to get one out but at least I'm back with one now. Um, we're going to plan. I'm probably recording one next week as well. So this is going to be one of those waiting for a bus and to come along at once type of things potentially. But um, yeah, unfortunately, that's just just uh, how things have been the last uh, couple of months or so. Um, I guess quite a lot's happened since I last recorded. I can't remember. Covid must have already been underway when I put the last one out. I'm not sure. Uh, but like, yeah, the. Um, Black Lives Matter coming, kind of coming to prominence again. Um, it's been a shame to see the the attempts to turn that stuff into a culture war debate and and kind of shift the focus away from what the the, the protesters and, and campaigners are actually asking for. But um, yeah, and obviously the, the the conditions they're responding to are horrific. But uh, I look for the, the the positive note there, and it's great to see. The, the prominence that the Black Lives Matter is getting and um yeah ho- hopefully if we continue fighting then they'll then um, we can all get to a better place um kind of get some of those demands met or at least get closer to having some some of those demands met but um yeah that'll be a fight of course um yeah fuck the police so this episode kind of returns to a subject that we touched on uh to an extent before um, there was that episode called Silicon Valley and the Libertarian Apocalypse where where I talked to Mark O'Connell about these kind of uh, yeah, very wealthy Silicon Valley people building their bunkers for the apocalypse and, and stuff like this. But um, so, yeah, we're talking about Silicon Valley again. I'll be talking with um, Wendy Liu, who's uh, recently had a book come out called Abolish Silicon Valley. Um, it's very interesting in that Wendy was somebody who used to kind of be very much embedded in the um, in the tech industry and the kind of Silicon Valley Valley way of thinking. Who 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 um, ran a startup and tried to be one of those um, wealthy startup people, and then kind of gradually uh, moved further and further left and, and kind of found a new perspective on, on tech and the industry. But so this book, this book's kind of, um, I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to the conversation with her, but seeing that story unfold and, and seeing the kind of, um, yeah, the kind of investment that she puts into her idea of herself and, and the work she put into her startup and kind of, uh, the story of, of how she kind of, is tricking herself almost or like lying to herself about the, the viability or, or like what she's doing um it's a really interesting story and uh interesting perspective on silicon valley so yeah we'll be we'll be talking about our experience we'll be talking about silicon valley ideology uh in general we'll be talking about the culture there uh, both in terms of like silicon valley's concept like utopian conception of itself and 
um, kind of trying to articulate an alternative vision to some extent that actually is utopian. So, uh, yeah, I hope you will enjoy that conversation. Um, before we get to that, I suppose I should mention, um, I mean, I feel guilty asking you for stuff, seeing as it's been so long since I've done anything, but I'll ask anyway. Um, if you've been enjoying this podcast, rating and reviews uh, would be very helpful. They help to get more people listening to it, um, help the podcast grow. And I'm hoping that by doing that, it will it will allow me to not have such big gaps between episodes and uh, keep them more regular. Also, if you want to support me, you can go to um, patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Very much appreciate all the people who have supported me on there. Appreciate those of you who have been supporting me through this barren period of, of main episodes. I've at least done, I think, a decent job of keeping up the uh, the um, additional Patreon episodes. So they're always there if you're looking for more stuff from me. Uh, need to record another one of those soon, really, as well. So yeah, check out the Patreon if you, if you want to hear some more things from me and you want to help support this podcast and ideally help me get to a place where I can uh, avoid big gaps like uh, like the ones that have just happened uh, and keep this as regular as possible. Um, I feel like I must have more to say just because it's been so long since I've recorded and probably I had stuff to say uh, planned that I've forgotten, but um, I can't think of it for now. So... Oh, one tiny thing, I guess I could say. Um, somebody mentioned to me about the Philip K. Dick episodes. Like I said, I'm going to keep going through every, every Philip K. Dick novel. I haven't done one for a while. Doesn't mean I'm not doing it. I am planning to do it. Probably one of the next few episodes will be a, a Philip K. Dick one. Um, maybe there's other stuff I've mentioned that I've planned to do. Um, if I've mentioned it, it's probably still happening. Uh, I have a list of stuff that I aim to do. I have people I've been emailing about various um, various uh, episodes that I want to do. So yeah, if there's something else I've forgotten now that I've mentioned that I want to do, it's um, yeah, probably still underway. But uh, anyway, I, I don't think there's anything else. So I'll leave you now with my conversation with Wendy. Joining me now is Wendy Liu. She is the author of a book called Abolish Silicon Valley um, and I would like to talk to her about um, that book and some of the subjects she brings up in that book today. Um, Wendy, uh, thanks very much for coming on, first of all. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. And um, to, to, to get us started off, could you just give, for, for people who don't know anything about it, could you give us a, an idea of, of what the book is about? Sure, yeah. So the book is maybe oddly named because um, it's not actually uh, like a political tract as such. It's more, it's a memoir. Uh, first and foremost, it is the story of how I personally became disillusioned with the tech industry. And there are some, you know, ideas for how we can make it better, but it's not really, um, you know, it, it, it is sort of a call to just change the way we think about it, but it's not like a step-by-step for what we need to do to dismantle this industry. It's more just me trying to explain why I went from a true believer in the tech industry to hmm. someone who now wants to burn it all down um, in a way that hopefully pulls along people who were in a similar or who are in a similar position to where I was. So yeah, the book is, it's kind of strange in that it is, um, it's more of like a, like a personal story than, than anything else, but it is a personal story that I hope also makes a political point, which is that the way the tech industry is now, uh, it's, 
first of all, it's awful. <laughs> this is, it's horrible. It should not have to be this way. And also this is not something in isolation that the, the tech industry is the way it is because of the larger socioeconomic system that we're in. And if we actually want an industry that fulfills the utopian potential that I think a lot of people associate it with, then we're going to have to see much broader structural changes to not just the industry itself, but to the rest of the economy and a political system as a whole. Cool. And you, you mentioned uh, utopianism there. So you, um, I was obviously given the subject of this podcast, I was very pleased to see you kind of explicitly identify in the book like what you were shooting for as kind of a utopian or, or having a kind of um, coming from a, a utopian perspective why did you why do you specifically kind of uh present it as that i mean is it is it partly because of what you mentioned that the tech industry already or, or we, we already have a kind of um utopian ideal of what technology does is it something to do with uh your your own politics like why, why did you why did you frame it as being a utopian position that you're taking? Yeah, I think it's twofold because um, in the first place, the tech industry does surround itself with this u utopian rhetoric, really. And I think there are a lot of people who are drawn to the industry because of this strand of utopian thought, even if it's never fully fleshed out, even if it's at times contradictory. Mm. But I do think the the industry itself has used that to make itself sound like not just another industry. You know, it... It's not just like Wall Street, or so they'd have you think. It's not just about making money. It's about actually making the world a better place. And I mm. think that's a beautiful thought. And there are people who are not yet jaded so as to be cynical of that and still you know, think that's true. And I think there is something beautiful in that. And I would love if the industry were actually about making the world a better place first and foremost. Um, and I think it's part of why I became so disillusioned was recognizing that I wasn't and that the all the, the talk of utopian promises was in a sense a way to distract from what was actually happening, which is something much more banal and much more, um, I don't know, just disappointing. And I guess for, in a personal sense, I'd, I'd personally been attracted to what I saw as the utopian promises of the industry. Um, I really believed in the idea of meritocracy that it didn't matter who you were, where you came from, as long as you were good at what you did, then you would get what you deserved. And I think there there's a dark side to that, but there's also something about that that is better than other systems that, that mm. we're all used to. And so I think the industry does a really good job of at least pretending that it cares about that. And in recent years, I think the it, it's harder to believe in that unambiguously, but at the same time, I, I do think there is something beautiful in the idea of letting people flourish at what they're good at and you know allowing people to achieve their full potential so there there is like definitely a seed of something beautiful in that and you know in, in a kind of more um in a, in a on a stranger note i was personally very attracted to the idea of open source software and creative commons and you know the the idea of intellectual property being a fetter and how can we make a world where we don't need that so i i, I still find that very beautiful um, and i think that is a utopian promise uh, and that's something that we'd have to fight for. And something I realized in the last few years is that you're not going to get that without a struggle. It's it's not like it's not like we just have to do a couple of things and then we'll have open source everything. It's like, no, there are actually very, very powerful agents who do mm. not want things to be free. And so I think, yeah, there's there, there is something beautiful in the utopia. And I think it is worth holding on to that. And part of why I'm so strongly disillusioned by the tech industry is because I realized too that um, 
this utopian strain was mostly just talk. It wasn't actually baked into the, the mechanics of how the industry works. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we, you've, kind of, you've, you've kind of t- touched on it a little bit there, but I just wondered if we could kind of delve into a bit more the the kind of ideology of Silicon Valley. Um, and yeah, one of the one of the interesting things about this book is, as you said, you were somebody who was um, a part of that culture. Uh, you you uh, had your own startup and stuff, and you you were you were really embedded with it in this idea and you've you've obviously now somewhere very different but see i, I think that that gives you a, an interesting view um of how silicon valley sees itself so when we talk when we think if we're talking about silicon valley having a, its own ideology which i kind of think it, it does it has something about it um how would you, would you characterize that uh, Silicon Valley's um, view of the world and, and how it sees itself like what are the key pillars of that ideology yeah that's a great question so I think um, yeah like, like you said it, it does make sense to generalize even though this doesn't describe everything and it's kind of hard to define the boundaries of what constitutes Silicon Valley as such but still I think yeah. you, know, you we talk about this I'm sure people will be like oh yeah that that seems like some startups I know, that seems like some founders I hear about in the news. So I would say, you know, broadly speaking, is there's this there's this idea of meritocracy, uh, and that the best rise to the top, and um, this is a place that rewards hard work and talent. It's it's not about who you know. It's about um, just being good at what you do, being scrappy, being a hustler, being smart, but like smart in you know a kind of creative and novel way, uh, and just having this relentless drive to succeed. And doing it not not just for greed, not not just because, you know, you want to make a lot of money, but because you actually want to do something cool and you have an idea that you want to explore. So I think that those are all kind of key to the self-image. And then there's there's the function of Silicon Valley. And I think what people who believe in the industry see it as doing is they, they see it as providing innovation, efficiency, um, just taking the... The, the kind of bugs in the, in the world as it is now and smoothing over those bugs and, you know, making, just making things more efficient, making things seamless, frictionless, um, joining together all these systems that weren't previously joined up and centralizing it in a way that allows for just smoother functioning. And yeah, you know, the people who do that happen to get tremendously wealthy, but in that sense, that wealth is earned. It's deserved because they did something so amazing that they deserve to be compensated for that. Uh, and then there's, the, I think the, the story of the underdog, which is a bit of a weird one when we look at it now, given that the industry is just so massive and so wealthy, and that some of the people who got wealthy within it are, you know, now the richest people on earth. But there definitely was a time when it seemed very reasonable to see the the people going to the tech industry as the underdog. You know, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. He was like a, essentially a teenager when he started what would become Facebook. Um, and, and I'm sure there are people who looked at him and thought, wow, like he's such an underdog. He's just this nerdy guy who doesn't have a lot of money. He's not, he's not super popular or good looking, but instead he managed to create something amazing. And I think there are people who could identify with that. You know, I, I definitely identify with that. I think there's like an element of, um, worshiping just like the, the underdog, the, the nerd, the person who is just working really hard and really, really smart and, you know, up against the, I, I guess like in the, in the case of Facebook, the the social network, the movie, it probably cemented that in a lot of people's minds where it's like the the scrappy nerd versus these 
really wealthy, really well-connected twins who just like represent the, the forces of evil. And I think it's, you know, it's probably it's a bit, bit of a misnomer to see it that way. But I think that, you know, does cement the way people see it. So, yeah. There's yeah. a, a lot of, uh, <laughs> sorry. So I was just saying, there's a lot of uh, mythologizing yeah. there around like, um, like, you know, the idea that Jeff Bezos yeah. uh, created Amazon out of his garage yeah. always leaves out the like massive <laughs> amount of money that he got from his very, very wealthy parents and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think this this kind of mythologization happens, I think, just generally within like capitalism. Mm-hmm. But I think it does, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think there's a the kind of like twist to it in the Silicon Valley sense where... Uh, like you said, it kind of connects to what you were talking about before, where it's it's not just that they're coming from this place of being an underdog, but they are they're not just like getting rich in the traditional way, which is like how you might see it in other capitalists that they're they're doing something that nobody else thought of and like changing the world and uh, like breaking boundaries. So yeah, it seems to me like it's kind of similar to a way that similar to a dynamic we see in capitalism in general and the way. Uh, capitalists and mythologized but it does it feels to me like it's got a slightly it c- comes out in a slightly different way in Silicon Valley mm. if that makes sense yeah yeah and I think in the case of Jeff Bezos it's worth remembering that not only does he have fairly wealthy parents but he was also working at a hedge fund it's not like he was yeah. <laughs> you know like working at McDonald's and making minimum wage he he was doing fine he had a pretty cushy position he would have been rich no matter what now he's just fabulously like impossibly rich so yeah i think uh, the the mythology around a lot of these founder stories is incredible because if you think about it you know um, of course capital will always try to create these stories but i think part of the reason these stories are so prevalent is because the press was so eager for that kind of story and they they you know they propagandize these companies um, and that's that's a shame i mean now we're at a point where i think the press is a little bit more cynical of tech but definitely there was a time when you you could not read negative stories of these companies from like, you know, the mainstream publications because it was just everyone was kind of just they bought into this idea that these companies were different. They were started by young idealists who had like a really novel way of looking at the world and they weren't going to end up like uh, Wall Street or whatever. They're, they're just going to create something new and beautiful. And yeah, you know, unfortunately, it didn't happen that way now. The biggest, some of the biggest companies in the world are tech companies, and they have a lot of problems. And it's it's hard to not think about the problems now because the problems are really all we hear about. And I think, in a sense, the oh, there there's like a kind of material reason for needing that kind of story to to be so compelling because when you have this much wealth, when you have companies that are capable of making billions and and even trillions of dollars within a few decades. You need a really good story to explain to people why they should be okay with this in a, this level of inequality. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, in, in earlier eras in human history, we had monarchy. We had this idea of divine right uh, of the king or whatever. And that was a pretty compelling story. But that story ended. And, you know, it's no longer as compelling to most people. And now we have a new kind of story. We have a new, a new kind of king. And it's the king who is an entrepreneur who created something so amazing that we should all, you know just bow down to them every day and thank them for it and, you know, just appreciate the fact that they're allowing us to, like, live on this planet. I think that's kind of the, the new story we're, we're being asked to believe. And, I mean, to, to, like, kind of go into it more, I think what's really interesting is that 
as much as Silicon Valley loves to trash um, other industries that you know aren't as innovative and aren't as well-meaning, like Wall Street, for example, there are a lot of financial companies that are trying to disrupt Wall Street. At the same time, I mean, if you look at the stories that Wall Street tells for itself, it's they're not that different. And I talk about this in the book a bit. There's like a bit on Wall Street, um, and I and I read this book called Liquidated, which is like an ethnography of people who work on Wall Street. And what I found so stunning was the fact that so many people who work on Wall Street and who are, you know, defenders of Wall Street will say the same things that Silicon Valley says about itself, uh, which is really mm-hmm. just, it was shocking to me because I had always had this image of Wall Street as this like awful, greedy place where everyone was just terrible. It was like, no, they, they also believe that it's better than it is. And, and I, I guess that got me thinking, it's like, well... Maybe it's just very easy when you're within the bubble to believe that your industry is good and believe that you're doing good and just to not see the bad because, you know, just as Upton Sinclair would say, like if you're being paid to believe in it, then it's it's really, really hard to, to kind of see through that, right? So yeah, I think that that was one of those things that made me think a lot more critically about the industry and just recognizing that the mythology of the industry is probably not true. <laughs> like it's it's, you know, almost by definition, but it's also... Um, the reason it's so strong is because the people on top need it to be true. They need Mm -hmm. the masses to believe that the only way to have innovation and efficiency and progress is for Jeff Bezos to be worth $150 billion. They they need to believe that all these like random founders have to become billionaires um, while, you know, their, their work, their frontline workers are making minimum wage. They have to, they, they need people to believe that because this is what maintains this level of hierarchy and inequality. And the second that narrative collapses, well, you know, that's that's when revolutions happen. And so it I think it completely makes sense to me that the mythology around Silicon Valley is so strong and that has only seemingly gotten stronger in the last few few years, like as the industry has gotten more powerful, because it has to be. Right? If if it stopped being this strong, if we all just looked around and we're like, wow, these people are totally useless, then they, they wouldn't have as much power as they do because that power is it is as much a social construct as it is material. It's not like these billionaires necessarily live in fortresses and have huge armies of private contractors. It's it's more of a like the kind of the hegemony that we live under, it's all it's all very ideological. It's all like we all have to kind of believe that things are a certain way. It's the the power that they exercise is not as, um, you know, violent and physical as, as it could be, as it maybe was in earlier eras. Instead, it's more just this, we're expected to believe that these people are uh, the only way to have innovation and progress. Mm. That's, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the reasons that the, the kind of utopian framing is quite useful. Um, and something I think your book's quite good at is like, yeah, showing this, and make it, having us think of these in, in terms of like being stories that people are telling because yeah as you're as you're articulating there like they these are kind of these are these are almost like utopian stories of like this is how we're making the world of a better place this is why what we're doing is valuable so yeah i think that's a, it's um quite a useful way of like thinking of these things um i went to i went to ask you Again, I, I I like the fact that in your book we get like a personal perspective. So, it, to what extent, or like, how was your own identity um, like tied up in that ideology? Because I think you know we it's 
a lot of the time when we're talking about ideology, we're talking about it in quite abstract terms, but I think maybe, uh, yeah, it's not something we see so much like the idea of how you as a person are embedded in that ideology and how you entangle yourself within it. So I, I just wonder if maybe you could talk, talk a bit about that. Yeah, I like the way you frame that. And I, I do think that there should be more accounts of ideology on, on a personal level because I, you know, mm. when I was writing this book, I, I was just thinking like, I would love to read more about other people's experiences with this kind of thing. Like being able to recognize the ideologies that they held previously and identify which parts of them, they, you know, which parts of what they believe are kind of harmful and not good for themselves or for others. Uh, and I have read um, some like essays in that vein. And I, and I think it, those have helped me clarify for myself, but yeah, I think there, there should be more of that. Cause you know, a lot of people change the way they see the world over the course of their life. And it would be nice to know how that happens. But yeah. Mm. Um, so for me personally, I guess what, what I had to go through was just um, recognizing that the way I saw the world was something that had been inculcated in me from from a pretty young age, you know, just from spending a lot of time on the internet, from reading venture capitalist blog posts and uh, programmer blogs and uh, hmm. just kind of absorbing that culture in, in, in like a very, a very gradual and like slow sense. So hmm. it was hard for me to identify exactly what I believed and why, but I think over time, you know, when I was writing this book, I, I had the chance to look back on it and think about it. Um, and I think part of what it was is just this idea that I could, I, it was okay that I was not, you know, happy at school and I didn't have a lot of friends or, and I didn't really feel like there was a path for me in life. As long as I was good at computers, I would figure something out. So yeah, I went through this phase when I was, I don't know, like 12 to 15, where I just spent so much time on my computer. I would sometimes even skip school uh, and just stay at home and do stuff on my computer. I would play video games. I would read message boards. I would uh, work on like my own projects. I would do web development for people. And that I think helped, helped me um, just get a sense of the possibilities of this world where I just spent a lot of time on my computer. And it also seemed like an escape route from, from school and from mm. that path that I, I thought that was leading me towards because I just, I wasn't, I was not very happy. So I just kind of dove into it and I didn't really know what it would lead to, but you know, reading, reading enough stuff about programming, you, you kind of get the sense that there is an industry. There's a whole industry for people who are programmers. And if you're a good enough programmer, you could get a job at Google or, um, a company like that. I think Google at the time was like the, just the, the shining star. And so I thought, okay, yeah, I could be a good programmer and get a job at Google one day. So it was kind of just like in the back of my mind, I wasn't entirely sure what I would do about it, but you know, in college, I ended up majoring in computer science. uh, And I started uh, doing like software development as a job in various um, research labs in my university. And then one day I was talking to a friend at a lab and I, you know, we were talking about summer internships and he said, well, I have a friend at Google. I could help you get a job there. And I was like, whoa, like that's, this is everything I've ever wanted. So yeah, I, I applied and I got an interview and then I passed the interview and then I also got an offer from Facebook that summer too, but um, I think at the time Google Google just seemed like it had more cachet, so I was like, yeah, let's let's go with Google. So I, yeah, I did my internship at Google, and I think that was when um, I started to really confront the fact that I had this weird ideology that I just took for granted and that I didn't really have any way to 
back it up because I, I really had this idea that Google was this paradise and they were just they were just doing these amazing things. They were inventing and they they were creating all this wealth and that everyone there is going to be brilliant. Um, and I get there and it's like, fine, it's just like a normal tech workforce. And they're already like, I can see some of the, the symptoms of the you know inequality that Google is pretty famous for today with its contractor system. And mm. I remember thinking just like, oh, this is it. Well, if this is it, then like, what, what was I working so hard for? Why was I spending all my time doing part-time jobs and open source software and like side projects to be a good programmer? when it doesn't really seem like this is that special. It just feels like, you know, corporate America. So I was struggling a little bit with that, but at the same time, it was it was something where I thought maybe I was just stupid for thinking this. Maybe this is like, maybe this is just me overthinking it because everyone else here seems to be reasonably happy. Hmm. So that was something I kind of just tried to push to a, one side. But at the same time, um, I did my internship in the San Francisco office. And San Francisco, you know, as I'm sure people already know is just has a horrible homelessness problem. California has a much greater homelessness problem than pretty much any other state. And the U S you know, as you can imagine, it it is way worse than most, most other advanced countries Mm. and being in San Francisco, being an intern and already making, I think I made like 24 K or something that summer just for like three months of work. Um, and recognizing that there were people who were literally just sleeping on the streets. They had tents, where they just didn't have tents at all. Uh, and, you know, having to walk through like pe- uh, places where people were sleeping on the street just to get to work and my like 10 minute walk to work, I just had this feeling of, oh, well, there's there's something wrong. Um, and I didn't really have like a, a spot in my worldview to accommodate that. I didn't know how to think about that. And there was a yeah. part of me that just said, well, these people, they they just they must have messed up. Um, they just didn't study hard in high school or something. And so they deserve to be homeless. That was kind of like what I wanted to believe. But at the same time, you know, that's, that is a pretty difficult thing to believe. Like that, that takes a lot of cruelty and a lot of lack of empathy to be able to actually believe that. And so I just really struggled with that. And I didn't really know who to talk to about that. But I, I do remember thinking like, well, you know, there's something, there's something off here. And maybe the things I'd previously believed about, meritocracy and you know tech being this amazing place maybe there's something that i just didn't understand before but at the same time it's not like you know it's not like someone was telling me here's here's uh here's the answer so i was kind of just struggling with that um the inconsistency for a while where you know i was working this great job and um you know i got a return offer to go back to google so i could make six figures starting straight out of college in a city where, you know, so many people were homeless, like thousands and thousands of people were homeless. Um, and I just didn't feel good about that. And I ended up not going to Google, partly because of that, partly because the work itself seemed boring, um, partly because they had these policies around open source. But yeah, I think the ideology I had at the time, I mean, it was it was definitely being tested by, you know, the, the experiences I was having. But at the same time, there was a lot of this like STEM STEM first, um, you know, STEM arrogance, I think uh, uh, you mentioned in the notes, um, just this idea that the STEM, STEM careers are paid so well precisely because they're valuable and, and which means that jobs that don't, 
uh, give you a lot of money is just because you're you're not doing anything valuable. And so I really, really believe yeah, you, you like made the right choice. Yeah, exactly, the, exactly. Like you did the system correctly, which is yeah, which is so funny because it's that's such a shallow, naive way to see the world. Just assuming that the reward system is like functioning properly, and it's that is the sort of thinking that if I were actually, you know, as smart as I thought I was, then I would have seen through that. But I, I didn't. I just, I took it at face value. I really thought that if I was making a lot of money, that meant I was being rewarded for, you know, being a good citizen and contributing something valuable to society without really thinking, it's like, well, is that actually how money works? Who who has a lot of money today? You know, who is, who is uh, giving out these rewards? So yeah, it was just, it was really shallow. And I just had this, um, I kind of disdain for art students because I, uh, at the time I was in college, there was this big uprising uh, over tuition, tuition fee hikes. Uh, and I think it, m- yeah. most of the people I knew who were involved in that, they were art students. Um, a lot of my STEM friends were kind of like, oh, you know, it's just people complaining um, for no reason because they know they're not going to make enough money. And it's like that that was pretty typical <laughs> among, you know, me and my yeah. STEM friends where we just we really did not understand why anyone would object to, to the idea of like tuition fee rises. Yeah, it's it's interesting like, like stuff uh, like what you said like you know you you like when you saw these people uh, you know these homeless people and stuff like it, it bothered you and it kind of started to things like that kind of uh, were like a challenge to what you believe but it's kind of it's kind of a nice um, example I guess of ideology in action like like you said like how you you then try to accommodate it like into the narrative you know it's it's really interesting to see like how ideology works like this like you're coming across these inconsistencies and this is what people do then they they have to try and like they have to try and rework the narrative a, a, a bit so that it, um so that you know it, it, it still fits yeah exactly um, i think i think you know i mean everyone has holes in their in their ideology somewhere but there's only a certain level of sure. contradiction we can really tolerate before the the ideology itself starts to crumble and i think you know, for me, it was just easier to just try not to think about it too much because the more I thought about it, the more unsure I became of everything. And it's like when you're unsure of your whole worldview, then what what else do you have? How 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 are you supposed to yeah. like get up in the morning? Yeah, sure. So um, I think this is kind of a difficult question. <laughs> um, I find it difficult to answer anyway. I don't I don't know uh, if you can if you've got something to say about it. But I mean, we we kind of mentioned this um, already, but the ideology of like Silicon Valley, so Silicon Valley obviously exists within capitalism, and uh, the kind of ideology that Silicon Valley has, in many ways, replicates general uh, general ideology of capitalism. Like, there's a lot of similarities there. Like, um, just to give one example, like you talked about uh, the kind of valorization of uh, like hard work. Like, you know, if you achieve something, it's because you this is a meritocracy and you work hard or something that obviously just applies to capitalism in general. That's part of the ideology of capitalism. If you work hard, you get rewarded. Um, but obviously we're talking about these two things. We've separated Silicon Valley out as a category. So even though there's a lot of similar things between them and they're obviously interrelated, is there something like, are you able to articulate a bit like what it is about Silicon Valley that makes it, um, distinct or why we think about it differently just as from capitalism in general Mm, that's a great question yeah i think it i mean it's distinct in the way some other sectors are distinct because like we can think of wall street as having its own ideology hollywood maybe silicon valley i think part of the reason we 
pay so much attention to it is because it has just is gone so massive, so so wealthy, so quickly, and that's that is actually quite novel. There, there's something really different about how quickly some of these companies are able to scale, and they mostly follow the same playbook. Um, so I think it's partly just a you know like a from a materialist perspective, there is something different about this industry. It the way it works is it you know it allows for the possibility of scaling enormously quickly within an enormously short period of time and that that does make it quite different from from other industries i think at the same time i do think silicon valley has a lot in common with other sectors like you know as i mentioned wall street and hollywood and um Mm. nancy fraser who i I quote in the book she's like a um, philosopher and critical theorist she talks a lot about this concept of neoliberal um progressive neoliberalism rather which it was you know the the thing that the kind of hegemonic block in American politics that dominated before Trump got before Trump came in is you know you had the mm-hmm. the kind of the Democratic Party and it's it's links to Wall Street it's links to Silicon Valley and Hollywood um, where you had this this very very liberal and like progressive kind of politics when it comes to certain things like uh, in, in when it comes to social movements right so you could have a politics that embraced feminism and multiculturalism environmentalism um, LGBTQ rights but at the same time, it was still very, very, very capitalist. <laughs> it was not. It was not like a social democratic thing. It was. It was just like the the parts of the U.S. economy that were booming, like like Wall Street, like Silicon Valley. Those were the parts that were revered. It was not a political ideology that was pro worker in any sense. I think that's that you know was kind of like the the one flaw that just maybe like broke everything down. But. Yeah, and I think I think it's it is useful to see Silicon Valley not as a thing on its own, but is instead part of this like broader political terrain, with many many similarities to these other you know quote unquote dynamic sectors like finance. Because you know it's like when there's a lot of money, then that that can paper over a lot of contradictions. And I think Silicon Valley right now is it's dealing. It has been kind of cracking under the weight of its success in in many ways, and that um, there have been a lot more negative stories about the industry partly as a result of the fact that people are now paying attention because it's such a big industry whereas maybe like 10 years before no one really cared about a a startup that was like mm-hmm. two people that had no money but when that startup becomes like a billion dollar company then people actually do do care so yeah i think i mean the ideology of the industry is kind of like what we were saying before i i do think a lot of it has to do with the material conditions and the fact that it can amass so much money so quickly. At the same time, I, there is probably something quite specific to, you know, the the way the maybe some of the early people who were attracted to the industry. And I know there's this paper called the Californian Ideology by um, English media theorists uh, Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron. I've only actually skimmed it. I don't know if I'm I can like summarize it that well, but there's this, this link between kind of a libertarian u- utopianism. And, um, you know, some of the early people involved in the industry, I, I do think that is a reasonable way of looking at it. But I think today, I mean, what we have more of is just the industry is so big and it has attracted so, so much money and so, so many people that it's not really about political commitment as such. I think it's more just people, people flock towards te- the tech industry because one, there's a lot of money there. And two, it offers this vision of being able to do something for the greater good while still making a lot of money. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, the people who are attracted to the industry, they're, they're the ones who are kind of 
crafting an ideology like a you know ideologies never really stay stagnant they they grow they expand they become more complicated more unwieldy and i think right now what we have is an industry that holds together a lot of different people with um very different reasons for being in the industry and there are those who um really do care about making the world a better place and maybe they tell themselves uh every night before they go to sleep that one day after they've sold this company then they'll have enough money to do something they really care about. I think I think a lot of those yeah. people do exist and I was I was one of them. Um but I also think there are people who are here because they just they just need the money. Um they they want to have like a stable career um and they want to they want to be able to raise a family like in the bay area without you know having to be in financial precarity all the time. And it's very hard to get a job that does that outside of a sector like Silicon Valley or you know Wall Street or, or something like that. Um so I think you know it's it's kind of hard to talk about in like sweeping generalizations but I I think part of the reason that um it has gotten so wealthy so quickly is that it does attract um a small but important sector of people who are just ruthless and just really really care about <laughs> making a lot of money and you know you can you can probably think of examples but like Adam Newman of WeWork um you know he he was able to raise so much money for his company that really did not do any of the innovation that we usually associate with Silicon Valley and i think as a result there are uh defenders of the industry who would say that oh WeWork wasn't really a tech company it's not really Silicon Valley at the same time i mean what makes something part of an industry well it's like the Silicon Valley model is not necessarily geographically tied to the bay area it's not necessarily you know a specific set of steps it's more like a performance and we work was really good at performing silicon valley and that's how i was mm. able to attract so much money from some of the same people who've invested in companies like uber so yeah and i think what's special about that is that you had someone who was really really good at raising money and really good at convincing people that there was something this like greater vision behind it when obviously there wasn't as we kind of all now know but yeah and i think it's it's worth remembering that like that is a different kind of person than the kind of person who takes um you know a six figure job at Google out of school or even like less than that to work at a company because they need a career and i think it is worth separating out the ideology of founders from the ideology of you know low level software engineers or product managers mm-hmm. or designers or anyone really who's drawn to the industry not you know not because they're trying to become billionaires but because they just need a job So I think yeah it's a it's like a complicated yeah. place and it it is worth remembering that there are differences because when the media talks about the industry it kind of likes to only focus on the founders um and that's why we have this image of Silicon Valley as this place of like libertarianism and it's like well some of them maybe but a lot of rank and file tech workers donated to Bernie Sanders you know it's it's mm. it's not necessarily like this um one this one kind of person who's attracted to the industry Yeah sure Um could you tell us say one of the one of the uh, many interesting bits of the book is kind of getting an uh, insight of what it's like at Google as you mentioned you were um uh, you were an intern there could you tell people a bit about the 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 kind of culture within Google because it's kind of yeah and i guess how you responded to it because it's one of those things that like can sound appealing in some ways but also Uh, I don't know, it sometimes scares me a little bit. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, I I see in your notes that you did 
you did not like the fact that there was a slide, a multi-floor, multi-floor tube slide festooned in Google's colors. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it sounds like it sounds like a parody of what people think of when they think of a Silicon Valley office to me. No, you you have to go to go to one of the campuses to see what I mean. Like um, on the the main Mountain View campus, they have all these like you know the the Android logo, the big green guy. They just have yeah. like giant versions of him and all the various um, like desserts that Android versions are named after. So there's like ice cream sandwich and donuts and whatever. There are these right. just like, it's like it's like Disney World. There are these like giant statues and tourists will go to the campus and take photos with them. So Google is trying really hard to cultivate this atmosphere of being playful and fun as opposed to, you mm. know, a stodgy tech company like IBM or something. Um, and it probably helps that the founders had were they were grad students really when they conceived of the idea. So I think Google Google's a little special in that regard. Not all companies are like that. Um Microsoft is definitely not the the same kind of atmosphere. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I mean when I started at the San Francisco office, I remember there was there was a slide you walk into the office and there's just this giant colorful slide. Um, that you can take and I, I did not but I remember I brought my brother there and he was pretty excited by it um, do people use it or like, I mean you can they like use it once and it's, then go in the stairs I don't think it's like like a typical thing but you can if you want and I, I don't even know if it's still there anymore I know the office has like expanded a lot since I left um, yeah. but yeah and then my first week I, I attended their uh, TGIF event just like a like a town hall event and they gave us all caps these like propeller caps um, and they had good. They said again, Google. Again, this sounds so Disneyland already. Like the idea of having a fake town hall. I, I, like, <laughs> this kind of fake idea of like a community or something, and a propeller cup. Yeah, um. yeah, that I definitely felt embarrassed by. But at the same time, I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'll just I'll wear it. They also gave us T-shirts that said our names on them, um, and like Google, and we just had a lot of like swag everywhere, uh, like backpacks and jackets and just you know whatever they wanted to give us i remember for pride they gave us these like pride t-shirts that just said google and in like pride colors <laughs> um they're they're really big on branding basically and yeah. you know creating this kind of like atmosphere of just being playful and friendly um but yeah i think one of the really weird things that happened while i was there is there was an employee who was fired and his firing was publicly announced at one of these town halls and the reason he got fired is just like pretty typical of Google. It was because he leaked something. He talked to the press about something he was not authorized to talk about. And I remember mm. thinking like that, that's weird uh, because they, they did tell us very, very, in very strong terms, do not leak while you're at Google. And so, because even as an intern, you have access to a lot of internal discussions, internal data. And if you talk to the press, then, you know, that's, you can get in trouble for that. But, but like, I figured that, you know, I have no reason to talk to the press. I don't know anyone who's, who's in media, so I don't even know who to talk to. But I didn't really think that was a big thing until this one town hall when this guy was um, fired and the, the founders were kind of, like, joking about it. I recounted a bit in the book where they're, like, one of them was, like, we, we've terminated this guy and the other guy's, like, fired. And everyone was, like, ah, that's so funny. The joke is that they, they killed this guy. And it's like what? Yeah, it's so sinister. Yeah, and uh, right. you know, yeah, like the public announcing and like the, the like you say this, trying to cover it in this veneer of like, oh, we're fun guys. They're they were billionaires at the time. Like it wasn't just like two normal guys uh, yeah. trying to protect their their like trade secrets. It's like this is a multi billion dollar company. It's and you know they fired someone for saying something just super minor, 
to the press about a project that it, I mean, it, it wasn't anything serious. It was just like, there was this puff piece about a new project in the works that Google was working on. It, I remember thinking like, this makes no sense at all. Um, but at the same time, what am I going to do? You know, uh, I didn't really understand what the protocols were and they did tell us very carefully to not fire anyone, uh, to, to not leak anything. And so I figured, okay, I guess he broke the rules. That's just how it works. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was like one of the things that shook my faith the most. I think another thing was looking around and noticing the racial discrepancies and gender discrepancies between the full-time employees and the contractors. And when I say contractors, um, at the time, Google didn't have as big of a contractor workforce as it does now. Um, this was in 2013, but they still had, you know, people who were cleaners, um, security guards, cafeteria workers, and, and other contract workers who were like more white collar workers who just had a different color badge. And there were all these signs where it's like, you know, you have to look at the, the color of the badge of the person behind you in case they follow you somewhere they're not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the contractors, they weren't allowed to take the bus, like, or at least some of the time it, it was very confusing. But I remember reading um, an explainer from Google HR telling us that the reason that contractors weren't allowed to do things like come to the holiday party is because of the IRS. They, they were very careful to blame it on the IRS. And I was like, oh, wow, so the IRS is awful. How, how dare they do that <laughs> without recognizing that's like, well, Google chose to classify these workers as contractors. They could just yeah. pay them more. They could just give them more rights. But that was not yeah. something I considered at the time. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk a bit about um, the, so um, obviously the, the idea of technology and like what it's used for is like a, a big part of, what you're talking about in the book. So how does capitalism define um, the way that Silicon Valley operates and um, why is that a problem? Mm, yeah, okay. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the dynamics of Silicon Valley because just, just to, you know, set the term. So the tech industry mm -hmm. is not is not a charity. <laughs> it's, it's not about, like, actually solving problems and making the world a better place independent of cost. The actual no. goal of most of the, the companies and institutions that comprise the industry is to make a return on capital. And so uh, most companies that scale very quickly within the Silicon Valley model, they do so by taking on venture capital. And that venture capital is provided by, usually by VC firms, sometimes like more directly through, um, you know, wealthy investors or wealth funds or something. But most of the time you have these VC firms that pull together money from all sorts of sources, including uh, university endowments, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, pensions, um, basically wherever wherever there's like a ton of money floating around. And their, their function as uh, venture capitalists is to make a return on that amount of money. And the reason it's venture capital is because it's supposed to be risky. There's this idea that, you know, you, you don't know if any one of your investments will pan out, but you know that if you invest in a hundred companies, maybe one of them will pan out. But then mm -hmm. that one obviously has to do really, really well to make up for the cost of the others failing. And so within the venture capital model, there's a bias for companies that are very ambitious. The ones that can become like Amazon or Google or Uber, the ones that have the possibility of just scaling very quickly in a short period of time. And because of that, what that means is like the business model itself is less of a consideration. It's not about profit. It's, it's not about like how profitable a company can be right now. It's not like, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, there's always a preference for a company that will lose money right now if it can become like a 
you know, a company that has a billion users in like 10 years time over a company yeah. that is small and profitable and growing at a small rate. So I think that yeah. the model itself already biases towards certain types of companies, including the, the more risky ones, the ones that don't have good business models yet, but like will maybe come up with ones one day and the ones that are about some like new kind of technology. And so like venture capitalists love the idea of VR uh, virtual reality or augmented reality or blockchain or just anything that feels like it's a cool kind of technology as opposed to something boring like i don't know providing food to people or whatever um, and if, if you're going to be doing something like providing food for people you better be getting a big cut of the profits and you if you don't have that much profit right now that's okay as long as you have control over the gateway which means that in the future, once you've driven all your competitors out of business, then you'll get a lot of the profit. So yeah, I think that's this is kind of how VCs have to think. It's not necessarily like this malicious thing. They're not just these awful people. It's just they're constrained by the institutional pressures and that they have to make a certain amount of, amount of return. And when you're only investing in fairly risky ventures that have some sort of unproven element, then you have to look for the ones that are ambitious enough that they they're either going to be billion-dollar companies or they're going to you know, die in a blaze of glory. That's kind of like what, what you just have to do. And what this means yeah. is that if a venture capitalist is given two pitches and one is like something that will, I don't know, help make branded, like branded video experiences um, better and just, you know, it will be able to make a billion dollars by selling ads to Nike and whatever. Um, one company like that. And then another company that has this audacious idea to reduce homelessness but it's not going to make any money because reducing homelessness is not fundamentally a profitable endeavor. Which one do you think the venture capitalist is going to choose? I mean, there's no choice. There, there's no discussion. Like, unless they have some weird arrangement going on, they are bound by fiduciary responsibility to choose the more profitable venture. And there's a lot of room in that, which is why you have VCs like choosing things that are obviously not going to be profitable. But they, they do that because they justify to themselves that, you know, it's what they want to do. It's like, they want to they they like they love to invest in like vanity things that are just to show off to their friends how cool they are but they're not going to invest yeah. in things that are actually about making the world better in a way that doesn't give them um like cred for it it's just it's not what they can do and i think that the ones that have kind of broken from this mold they're they're really applauded for it and i i don't know it, it's complicated because i think there is quite a bit of room for vcs to behave differently but for the most part, they have to behave in ways that provide a return on investment. Um, and what that means is they have to invest in the companies that they think are going to make a lot of money one day. And, and you know, does that constrain possibility? I would, I would argue that, yes, it does. Um, because, unfortunately, the dominant strain of thought within the Valley is that the free market is the best way of solving problems. <laughs> and in a sense, like, when I put it that way, I mean, I feel like you and I would just say, like, obviously, that's not true. But there are a lot of people in the industry who have kind of absorbed this. And so it's very hard for them to see an alternative, um, especially when we're living in this kind of neoliberal wasteland where governments are just not empowered to do anything. And, you know, we disdain governments when they do do anything. But the the problem is that you have, you have these social ills that I personally do not think can be addressed through free market solutions. And yet most of the funding is going towards... Um, free market solutions like startups. And so like, if you have a problem, like I just give a couple of examples. I've been looking into some startups recently that offer essentially payday loans, but they do it in a way that makes it sound cool. So they have like a, a nice app yeah. 
um, they're called like Ernin or whatever, and just without the without the last letter. And so they, they sound they sound like you know a really cool um, user friendly startup experience. So you yeah you have all these amazing um, amazingly branded startups that are about payday loans essentially, and what they're and maybe they actually mean well because I've, I've read some of the marketing marketing materials and they say things like. You know, a lot of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We're gonna we're gonna help all these poor Americans who are struggling by giving them loans. And it's like, well, you know, they they probably do mean well. The problem is that giving them loans is not the right solution. Like the problem is that people are just not making enough money. Everything is too expensive. Yeah. Their bosses are treating them horribly. You know, it's the whole political um, political system is just broken. And if you're a well-meaning startup founder who's been given $3 million from some venture capital firm, like your, your natural inclination is to say, well, I can fix this by giving them a nice app. And it's like, you know, look, I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of feel bad because I, I do think they mean well, but I just, I think that's ridiculous. Like that's not the solution. It is the wrong lever. Um, that it's like when you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, when you're a startup founder and you have all this venture capital funding, everything looks like a problem that can be solved by a startup. It's like, no, there are some things that are just, um, antithetical to the idea of like free market solutions. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess just to answer the original question, financial pressures that drive a lot of these startups and companies that characterize Silicon Valley mean that these companies can't actually act in ways that are about making the world a better place when that would contradict the needs of capital as a whole. And I think that that's like a pretty broad statement. And there is room for, you know, individual sectors of capital to kind of like duke it out amongst themselves, which is how you get startups that are trying to disrupt like X industry. But at the same time, I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a company, a tech company getting to the point where it's both powerful enough to actually um, tackle another another sector of capital, and also not mm. already entwined with that, because you know by the by the time the t- all the tech companies we look at now got big, they they were all in bed with Wall Street, right? And so you, can you yeah. really imagine them actually trying to attack the institutional power of Wall Street or trying to you know improve labor labor standards in some ways? Like no, that's not really within their remit, and you wouldn't really expect them to. But those are the kind of problems, and so I guess. Just to kind of take a step back, the the problem I see with the Silicon Valley model is that it is not it is not suited for tackling the biggest problems of our time, which are all I would say problems of capitalism. You cannot just apply more capitalism to try to fix problems like yeah. homelessness or ecological destruction or like just political destabilization because these problems are um, they're intrinsic to capitalism, and the only way we fix them is by taking a different approach and having a new value system and new goals and Silicon Valley unfortunately it's um, maybe there was a time when it could have been different but the way I see it now is it's it's just really concentrated you know just hyper concentrated dose of capitalism with particular characteristics but it's not yeah. about breaking out of that model it's not a fundamentally different model yeah I think it comes across uh, yeah again really nicely in your book that yeah, all these, like we've, we've talked about this idea that Silicon Valley has of itself of like making the world a better place. And as you said, maybe, maybe sometimes they're like genuinely think I'm going to solve this problem with technology and whatever. But as you, as you're kind of saying there, it doesn't really, what you want to do as an individual doesn't really matter. Like it's a, it's a systemic thing. And once you, um, once you come, once you kind of, 
because you're within that system like the market dictates what you're going to do uh like it doesn't matter if you if you want to create a company that's run in a better way or, or whatever as you grow you have to you have to do what a company of that size does and that means you're going to end up the same as every other uh company so yeah i think that comes across nicely so you're you're obviously somebody who came from one place in particular ideology and ended up uh, somewhere else um obviously taking a, a far far more critical perspective um do you think that there's anything that is that transformation that you went to something you think is just like personal to you or do you do you think there's anything that you that you went through that you think can kind of be applied you know as a way to to kind of convince other people like other workers who who are in that industry now and embedded in that ideology like is is just what i mean is that something that can you take something that's that's happened to a person and think okay we could we can take these things out and apply that at a large scale to kind of convince people I do think that there's something more universal about my story. Um, maybe not like actually universal, but definitely more broadly applicable than just to my personal experience. And I think, um, and I think a lot of people are having similar transformations right now, just looking around at the world. I mean, how can you look around at everything that's happening now and think that the system is fine? Think that like things are okay. Um, I would say that the the goal of my book, if there's just like one takeaway, is that, you know, the, the, everything sucks. Like, this is broken. The system that we all live under does not actually work for the, the vast majority of people and that we really need to design a new system. Um, and I think it's that's a very argument to make today, especially like literally right now when we look at the fact that the U.S. is just suffering, is just doing so much worse with the coronavirus pandemic than mm. pretty much every other country. Um, and, you know, does it have to be that way? Eh, no, probably not. Could we have done different things? Like, yeah, probably. I think that just in itself um, should be a wake-up call to people who are not already convinced that the, the kind of socioeconomic system we have is just awful. Yeah, so I would say that the reason I kind of came to these conclusions I did um, were just a result of looking around and paying attention to other people's stories and recognizing that, you know, that just because the economy was working for me didn't mean it was working for everyone else. Mm. And from there, I kind of made this leap to you. It's like, well, I, I, I do care about other people, actually. Like, I, I don't want to live in a world where, you know, just me and like a few people that I care about personally are, are doing okay. I want to live in a world where everyone's kind of doing okay. Um, if only for a selfish reason, which is that if there's a lot of unrest, then, you know, then I won't be doing okay after all. So, but, but I think more than that, there's like this kind of moral commitment and recognizing that I care about more than just myself. Um, and, and I, and I want to, especially like, I feel like that's a good thing to strive towards is just actually caring about how other people who are connected to me through, um, you know, the global supply chain or just through living mm. in the same city as me. It's like, I, I, I want everyone to be doing well. Uh, and it, it's mm. pretty frustrating to see all this unnecessary suffering as results of this socioeconomic system that we don't actually need to have. So yeah, I would say that, like the, the kind of argument I would try to make to people who, you know, have not yet come to like these kind of conclusions is like, well, look around you. Do you think people are doing well? Do you think their mm. suffering is necessary or do you think that there is there's maybe some um 
some broader system that is preventing people from reaching their full potential. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel bad about that? Because I think, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a moral argument. And there's some people who you can't necessarily convince on moral grounds. I'm sure there are some who are just like, eh, well, other people's suffering makes me feel better about myself. Uh, and then what do you say to that? So I don't know if I can yeah. argue with those people. I would say, okay. I really think that's a minority. <laughs> exactly, exactly. People, yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think for a lot of people, um, it's just, it's a matter of like what you choose to pay attention to, what you choose to care about. Uh, and for me, I think part of what pushed me over the edge in terms of um, just like having a, a different worldview was paying attention to the stories of workers, especially so I remember back in maybe 2016, 2017, there are all these stories about Uber drivers and Amazon warehouse workers and just the really appalling labor conditions they had. And once I made the connection between those labor conditions and the fact that the those same companies were producing billionaires at the top end, that's when I kind of started to think, oh, well, there's something fundamentally broken about this model. And in fact, the, the wealth at the very top is a direct result of the exploitative conditions at the bottom. And that's kind of when I kind of like put two and two together and just felt pretty, pretty awful about this whole thing and realized that, oh, well, the, the model itself is um, at base. It's a fundamentally unequal, unequal one and it's unjust. And so, yeah, I would, I would say, you know, I would say that like what I was trying to do with the book was to get people to, if they aren't already pay attention to the stories of um, workers, especially if the people who, are not actually getting a fair share of the wealth that mostly flows up to the billionaires. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, uh, one final question. Um, so, I mean, you, you said you, you, your book's not like a, a point for point thing of like how to, you know, create a, a new a new world, but you you do nonetheless kind of gesture towards some directions that we might want to go, and. I think it's nice to, to end with some kind of utopian direction as well so could you maybe just um I have to go for everything in detail but maybe you could just um talk us through kind of some of the uh kind of the, the, the ways that you think we we should be heading to make technology into into like the truly liberatory um device that uh silicon valley might like to think it is at the moment yeah sure so i I'll preface this by saying that um, that chapter of the book is one that I did not actually want to write. And I was okay. I was told by my editor that I had to have, have some more concrete solutions. And I was like, oh, God, like, I don't know what they are, but I will do my best. But yeah, I think, I mean, I have a lot of concrete things in the book. I don't know if I would necessarily, um, if I were to write the book today, I don't know if I would go with that. I think I would probably just be a little more broad and say what we need is more is for workers to have more power. So we need much more democratic control of the means of production. That's one angle. And another is that we need to reduce the kind of surface area for capital. Um, that means decommodifying things. So for example, housing should not be a commodity. Education should not be a commodity. Healthcare should not be a commodity. And the more you decommodify things, the more you kind of reduce the um, breathing room for capital to kind of become this monstrous entity and take all this power. And, and I think that's very relevant to Silicon Valley because you have a lot of companies that are essentially parasites um, on these, these areas that, you know, should not be commodities, but unfortunately in our current system are. Uh, and yeah, I think I would just kind of, you know, boil it down to those two things, more democratic control over the means of production and less space for capital to flourish because things should just be provided 
as a human right. Like housing should be a human right. Healthcare should be a human right. And we have to redesign our socioeconomic systems to make that possible and to, you know, allow everybody to have like a decent quality of life. And then once you have that world, you don't need Silicon Valley. You don't need this massive parasitical industry Mm. that moves fast and breaks things in its quest for world domination. You just don't need that. If you, you know, if we're going to have technological development, which I would, I would say we should, I think it should be done in a way that is subordinate to human need. Technology should be, you know, crafted in a way that um, actually helps people and is not just like taking over and amassing power by um, forcing people to behave a certain way. I think it should be like, well, if, if your job could be a little bit more automated, then sure, let's automate in a way that helps the workers themselves uh, be more productive and let them, you know, let them reap the rewards of the things that they produce. If we want, um, yeah, I think if, if we're going to have technology, I think it should always be done in a way that is actually about um, just de- democratic control uh, and benefiting, you know, society as a whole, as opposed to making a few billionaires really wealthy. And I think once you kind of look at it from that paradigm, a lot of, there's a lot that you can do. There are a lot of different directions to go in, but overall, I think, you know, my, my solution, my solution, if I were to, to give like a, a one sentence thing to the problems with Silicon Valley is like, we need to overthrow capitalism because I, I don't think that this is the system that we have now is something that um, is compatible with human flourishing in the long term. And especially with just not even the long term, just like the medium term in the next 10 years, I think things will get a lot, a lot worse just because of everything we've done to the planet. Uh, And, you know, we, we're not going to solve this with more capitalism. We're not going to solve this with carbon taxes. We just need a radically different way of rethinking our relationship to nature. Uh, And I don't think capitalism is able to come up with that. Okay. Well, uh, we need to overthrow capitalism. Sounds like the perfect place to end for me. (laughs) So, um, yeah, um, thanks very much for coming on. And yeah, if people would like to to be more about this, um, it's, uh, yeah, I'd recommend the book. It's really fascinating um, story to see see Silicon Valley from like an inside perspective. So yeah, it's called Abolish Silicon Valley. And it's uh, from Verso, right? Repeater. That's repeater, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, repeater books, that's the one. So, um, yeah, you you will know uh, how to search for stuff, so you, you can find it. Um, is is there any anywhere else you'd like to point people towards, like Twitter or something? I uh, no, it's okay. I'm I'm trying not to use Twitter. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, well, uh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. It's it's been fun to talk to you. Thank you for having me. That is the end of my conversation with Wendy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, um, if you've got any feedback for me, it'd be great to hear from you. Any suggestions or uh, questions or comments or anything, then you can tweet me at Utopian Horizons. You can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. As I mentioned up top, um, ratings or reviews would be great. Um, they do make a difference in terms of like how visible the podcast is and uh, the more people that listen to this, the, the more it helps with um not just like raising the profile of it but the more people that listen the more people are likely to support me uh the more people that support me the the more regular uh, the easier it is for me to do this again if you want if you want to help support me directly then head to patreon.com slash utopian horizons and you sign up there you can get uh a badge 
and you can get uh, access to the bonus episodes that I put out. Um, should be finishing off Capitalist Realism soon. We've been going through that chapter by chapter. Been doing a bit of anime. Done the odd. Did a did an episode with um with uh, Rosie, my co-host from Get Object, recently on Kentucky Route Zero. Uh, on there so yeah lots of cool stuff to find there yeah other than that i hope to be back quicker uh with a new episode for you so hopefully i will uh see you in the not too distant future thanks very much for listening cheers bye bye